1: So San Francisco, Bullets Across the Bay. Today we're going to have three panelists, three mystery writers. Um, Long known for its hills, fog, and diverse cultures in history, San Francisco is a location for mystery settings of every genre, in print, on screen, and in song, because you're going to be called on to sing at the end of this. Uh, San Francisco provides the setting for those who write. During the last 150 years, hundreds of authors have been inspired by San Francisco and the Bay Area, and according to Randall Brandt, 1800 have written stories of murder mystery and mayhem. Maybe that's just the collection here. Uh, OK. Um, whether, titles, yes. Whether uh, subtle or larger-than-life, San Francisco can add undercurrents or tidal waves of images to a well-crafted story. So the focus of our panel today and the exhibit is on the influence of San Francisco on these many writers and filmmakers, and today we're going to examine some of their works set against this unique physical, cultural, and historical environment that we call San Francisco Bay Area. I'm just going to make it bigger. Um, And by extension, the San Francisco Bay Area because of crossing the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridges. There there may be some people who want to go into those other counties. So... (laughs) Three writers who didn't leave their hearts in San Francisco but lost everything there. <laughs> um, <laughs> still, still, losing. <laughs> <laughs> still losing it. Still losing it. To my immediate left is Kelly Stanley. Kelly is an award-winning author of crime fiction. Her first hard-hitting novel in the Miranda Corby series, City of Dragons, was met with overwhelming critical acclaim. It won the Macavity Award, the Sue Fader Historical Mystery Award, and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. The newest novel in the series is City of Secrets. Kelly also also writes a highly praised series set in Roman Britain, uh, the latest of which is The Curse Maker. Her debut novel, Nox Stormienda* won the Bruce Alexander Award for Best Historical Mystery of 2008. She makes her home in Dashiell Hammett, San Francisco, earned a master's degree in classics, and loves jazz, old movies, Doras, art deco, and speakeasies. Um, next to her is Eddie Muller, the czar of noir. <laughs> Eddie Muller writes novels, biographies, movies, uh, movie histories, plays, short stories, and films. He also designs books, programs film festivals, curates museums, and provides commentary for television, radio, and DVDs, A Renaissance Man. His debut novel, The Distance, set in 1948 uh, in San Francisco, earned the Best First Novel Seamus Award from the Private Eye Writers of America. He's a two-time Edgar Award nominee from the Mystery Writers of America, and there is a whole display out there for you to see later about MWA. He's also a three-times Anthony Award nominee. He's twice been named a San Francisco Literary Laureate He produces and hosts Noir City, the San Francisco Film Noir Festival, the largest noir retrospective in the world, which now has satellite festivals in four other cities. As founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, he has been instrumental in rescuing lost classics, The Prowler, 1951, Cry Danger, 1951, among many others. Uh, And if that's not enough, um, earlier this year, he presented a month-long series of rare film noir at the Cinématique Française in Paris. An excuse for going to Paris, yes. His stage production Fear Over Frisco, a trio of horror noir, plays all, um, during very, all set during various series of San Francisco history, currently playing Thursdays through Saturdays at the Hypnodrome Theater in San Francisco, and will be playing through November 19th, so I will get my tickets. You
2: all must come. OK.
1: Lucha Corpi, to my far left. uh, Lucha was born in Halitapan, Veracruz, Mexico. Lucha Corpi was 19 when she came here to Berkeley as a student wife in 1964. Well, you know what happened then. Well, some of you do, some of you don't remember. Um, She holds a BA from UC Berkeley in comparative literature and an MA from San Francisco State University in world and comparative literature. Lucha is the author of two collections of poetry, Spanish with English translations by Catherine Rodriguez Nieto, two bilingual children's books, and six novels, four of which feature Chicana detective Gloria Damasco. Eulogy for a Brown Angel, Cactus Blood, Black Widow's Wardrobe, and Death at Solstice. She has been the recipient of numerous awards and citations, including a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Poetry, an Oakland Cultural Arts Fellowship in Fiction, the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award, and the Multicultural Publishers Exchange Literary Award for Fiction, and two consecutive international Latino book awards for her mystery fiction. Until 2005, she was a tenured teacher in the Oakland Public Schools' schools neighborhood centers, and she lives in Oakland. So, all that being said, (laughs) uh, we have some pretty impressive people here. So I have a couple questions, but basically we're going to have a little interaction. Feel free to jump into any question. I don't need to direct it to you. And then we are going to open it later to you as well. Um, So what is it, and this would be for everybody, because we only have three people. What is it about San Francisco that inspires so many writers and filmmakers? Um, You can talk about yourself or your own inspiration. What is it about San Francisco? that's important, or San Francisco Bay Area, that's so important to you, or to writers who've come before?
0: Well, I can speak for myself. I can't speak for Jack London, and William Saroyan and Hammett, and everyone else, but uh, I was actually thinking about this question, because I kind of had an idea Janet was gonna ask it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I think the thing about about San Francisco is it represents, certainly for me, it represents some of the themes that I like to hit on, that I like to hit in my novels. Because I write historical mysteries about an era that is often made to look more rosy than it was, Uh, and it was an undeniably beautiful era, the era between the wars with the Art Deco architecture and big band swing and a few smaller population and little boats gliding on an unpolluted bay and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can really idealize this time, uh, and we have through films, through the passage of time, and through a willful memory. But in reality, you know, the past was not so pretty for many, many, many people in terms of ethnicity, in terms of sexuality, in terms of religious freedom. It was an era, too, when uh, you, know, you can advertise that Christians only were allowed to apply for job positions and when housing developments were also prescribed based on race and religious preference. So for me, San Francisco represents that beauty. It represents the beauty of the past, a timeless beauty. I mean, yes, I've seen changes, and I've lived here since the 80s, and it's changed a lot since then. Um, But there's a timelessness about San Francisco, its situation, its physical presence, its robustness, its cragginess, its hills, and the gentle sweep of the ocean that's not so gentle during the winter, the fog... it it has a poetic quality in its loveliness and at the same time it doesn't shy away from the ugliness either we've had our share of it in the 40s there was a lot of police corruption Um, we've had our 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 times of, of struggle and we keep having those times so for me i think it it represents that yin and yang it represents the dichotomy that fascinates me about the time that I'm writing in and and really is sort of, to me, the essence of of life, the beauty and the ugliness all at once.
1: Eddie?
2: Um, I I tend to agree with everything that Kelly just said. Um, For me, I mean, what makes it very personal for me is that, um, you know, I'm a second generation San Franciscan and my father um, was born here, in fact, born in Golden Gate Park. And um, just growing up, I I feel very, very fortunate. I was born in 1958. In fact, tomorrow is my birthday. I was born in 1958. And I think that there's something very uh, special about people of my age and, and my generation because we really straddled that previous generation because my father was still very much in his prime. He was a newspaper man, worked for the San Francisco Examiner, was kind of a big shot around town, and um, I really got to vicariously experience that era of San Francisco through him. And yet, my informative years were what immediately followed. I mean, I am a child of the '60s and the '70s, and so I lived through that massive change between those those two San Franciscos. And. That's what really intrigues me about it, seeing how the city can transform itself. And also that San Francisco... You know, I consider myself to be a native San Franciscan, but I'm well aware of the fact that the city attracts so many people from elsewhere who come here specifically to transform themselves because they believe that San Francisco has that transformative power. If I can get there, I can become the person that I really want to be or the person that I'm not allowed to be somewhere else and I think this has always been the case in San Francisco and I think that lends itself brilliantly to mystery and crime fiction (laughs) (laughs) because you don't know whether those motivations are altruistic or very uh... deceitful uh... so I think San Francisco has people who venture here and transform themselves into something wonderful and then it also has people who are complete charlatans who are looking to take advantage of all of those gullible people and uh, these things coexist and uh, you know I really think that uh, I see that you used my quote out there you know crime fiction was born in a small apartment at 891 Post Street I really think that that Hammett for our purposes today was the person who really saw and felt all of that, and uh, in those five novels and you know incredible number of short stories, uh, sort of set the template for everything that we've we have done since. I mean, I give him full alarming credit for that. That some somebody can get so much accomplished in five books. You know. um, anyway, that's that's what I basically think uh, is the the underlying if there's one underlying theme to San Francisco I think I think that's it that people come here to transform themselves and it doesn't always work out (laughs)
1: Lucha you came here (laughs) I came here from
3: actually the other coast uh, Veracruz uh, the Gulf Coast which is very different but um, when I came actually I came directly to Berkeley and I didn't know English and it was 1964 Uh, and the reason I learned English so fast was because I wanted to know what was going on all over including San Francisco, Berkeley, certainly Uh, and um, so I did manage to learn English because I didn't want my husband who knew English well (coughs) to translate for me I wanted to hear it directly from the hippies who were on Telegraph Avenue, (laughs) barefoot, you know. Here I was. Uh, It it was uh, fascinating for me because I was coming from a third world country, Mexico, where if you don't have money to buy shoes, you don't wear shoes. But here it was the sons and daughters of lawyers and, I mean, the professional upper class uh, by uh, going barefoot by choice, <laughs> so that was my first uh, encounter with the Bay Area through Berkeley. I did not uh, go to San Francisco. Still, my husband was working and going to school and all that, and uh, was hardly home. So I was pretty much left to my own devices, and I enrolled in the school, you know, over here on Dwight Way. Uh, McKinley High, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, to learn English, and um, little by little, began to get out of the area that was familiar to me, because I didn't know anybody and you know didn't have any friends, so I pretty much had to amuse myself, find my own amusement. And there was plenty in Berkeley. Uh, but it took me about six months to go to San Francisco, uh, the city. And it's still, for me, still the city. When I go to San Francisco, I always say I'm going to the city. <laughs> and, um, of course, you know, it has a lot of history that it was Mexican <laughs> until 1848. So uh, when you say Presidio, Mission, you know, all those, San Francisco, uh, you El Cerrito, which is always makes me uh, laugh because people call it El Cerrito Hill and El Cerrito already means a small hill <laughs> in Spanish so um, you know there are, there are um, different things that I remember about San Francisco but certainly it is the beauty of San Francisco itself but let's face it it was a sleepy town until the gold rush and in one year it grew 100,000 people because it was the entrance to the gold country. And so um, from that point on, I think that is the point where San Francisco gets its multicultural and multilingual um, uh, Personality, <laughs> because I think I mean everything has a personality in, in in this area. No matter where you are, where you go. Of course, I live in Oakland, which between Berkeley, which is the uh, you know rebel, and, blah, 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 and San Francisco, the charming you know arts mecca. I live in the ugly sister city, Oakland. <laughs> but um, it is. It is a fascinating place, and as you said so well, it is a place where you come to find who you are or to fulfill your destiny as it was for me.
1: And now we're going to talk a little bit about your books and why you set your books well, here. So, right that's I'll okay. <laughs>
2: Fearless 49ers back in the day Led the charge to our precious bay Lives were bought, lives were sold In that infernal rush for gold Our greed and avarice led to ruin and syphilis And fortunes founded on foul play That's the first stanza of the song Fear Over Frisco That was... (laughs) That you can hear on stage, performed live by the cast of Thrill Peddlers uh, in San Francisco right now. That's my my first song. That wasn't in the list. I actually I actually wrote a song for this thing. So
1: (laughs) So, you take your inspiration from the city, or the area, but from the city mostly because it kind of spills over. I'm going to start with Kelly, and this is not for everyone. This is for Kelly. But if you feel like jumping in, feel free to just jump in. Um, so Miranda is a female detective in 1940s. How many female detectives were there in the 1940s in San Francisco? And where did you find her? Come up with her.
0: Well. Miranda is a product of a long-standing affection that I have for the noir form, and I have to say, you know, and this is not a a subtle birthday present for Eddie, without him, I mean, he himself has been such an inspiration, not just to me personally, uh, but for so many of us in the city, uh, as authors, as fans, I've attended, I attended Noir City before I was published, I attended it while I was getting published, and I still attend it every year. Um, it's, it's awesome, and we owe, it to, we owe that to him. Um, Miranda came about because of my fascination with noir, and because of my, also because of my fascination with this era. The, the, my parents were born in 39. To me, it seems you know, it is a watershed year. Not only was it the, probably the best year of uh, Hollywood films that we've ever seen, it was the year that World War II started. Um, So I really wanted to play around with setting something in this particular time and place that I have always felt a yearning for, um, that I always felt comfortable in and yet intrigued by because of that dichotomy I spoke about earlier. at the same time, and as much as I love noir, I really came to object to the misogyny that is inherent in a great deal of noir fiction and noir film. Um, you know, when you see the schmuck getting railroaded by the broad over and over and over again, and then you study this in your classes and you realize that this goes back to Eve and Pandora and, uh, Jezebel and, you know, you can just fill a book naming all the bad, beautiful women that populate, you know, literature since time immemorial, um, I love them. <laughs> I knew he'd say something. <laughs> yes, I love them too. But one grows tired of that as a woman. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, let's just say they're a little hard to live up to. So what I wanted to do is create a character that had those attributes that we know and love. Who's beautiful. Who's sexual. Who's strong. Who's smart. But damn it, who is not bad. You know that was where I wanted to draw the line and so Miranda, I thought let's do something very transgressive let's take the femme fatale and put her in the Seamus shoes and that's what I tried to do with Miranda and San Francisco being the transformative place that Eddie so eloquently spoke about seemed to be the place to do that so that's really how she was born and in so far as her veracity, there were, last time I counted in my 1940 phone book, which is one of my Prize possessions in terms of research over 25 detective agencies in downtown San Francisco alone in 1940 a great many of these places used female operatives female operators were not uncommon a woman having her own business would have been uncommon um, and I can't say that there were any female detectives other than Miranda uh, at the time uh, but uh, I know there were definitely female detectives so you know It's her destiny, and a lot of people don't want her to be where she is. They want to take her down, but she's going to keep going.
1: Um, Lucha, so you chose a detective, um, and where was your inspiration? Well, actually, my detective chose me.
3: Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, i give you the short story, very short story. I grew up, I was born and grew up in a village it wasn't even a town in the southern part of the state of Veracruz, um, about 2,000 inhabitants uh, if you go from the Pacific the Isthmus of Tehuantepec all the way to the Gulf you will go right by my village and um, in this you know there were three things that were very important people. One was uh, poetry, the performance, and the, in the um, creation of poetry. A uh, short story, as part of the oral tradition, and um, also music. And uh, growing up in this environment. Um, you know, it, 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 the town was so small that when my brother, my brother and I were inseparable, he was six years old, he had to start school. I was four. I couldn't, but my brother wouldn't go to school without me, which meant that, you know, he wasn't going to go because he refused. So my father, being a small town, which my mother always used to say that a small town is a big hell because everybody gets into everybody else's business, But one of the advantages is that you actually know everybody. So my father knew the principal and the teachers and went to talk to the principal, and the principal said, Oh, yeah, sure, it's okay. You know, I mean, if she's quiet. You know, it's okay. And, uh, you know, he can come. He'll get tired of bringing her. He'll make friends, other friends. She will get, she's too young. She'll get tired of coming. But it didn't happen that way. So I did, you know, as an illegal student, they gave me a little desk in the back of the room. And over there, I sat quietly, and I learned everything. All the subjects were the first grade. My father would, you know, correct my homework at home. Then um, I went through the first grade, but, of course, I was for free and illegal, you know. So um, then I went on to the second grade with my brother (laughs) in the same situation, So I learned to read very well, and uh, by the time I was supposed to start school, they they would not allow me to go to to first grade, to third grade. I had to repeat the second grade. But uh, my father to challenge me, there were two things that were very important. You know, one was that my third grade teacher to challenge me in reading, and everything started teaching me how to declaim poetry how to know the phrasing of poetry, how to deliver a line, how to project a voice, you know, all of those things. And, um, and the, the second one was that um, my father had a cornea transplant and couldn't read, and he asked me to read from the paper from, for him and I did, I loved my father and it was wonderful because I learned so much He would explain so much but I was forbidden to read from the red page La Pagina Roja, the crime page and this was a loose page which parents would take out, would fold my father would fold it, put it in his shirt pocket to get rid of later there was no threat of punishment if I read it he never said you know, so I took him literally. I went and looked for that bread page every time I could. Every, and I read it, of course. Uh, you know, hiding always, and that's how uh, I won't tell you the first case that made me want to one day write a mystery, because it's too long. But you can read it. Uh, the ethnic detective, um, uh, and okay. the ethnic detective. Uh, I think it was the first. The first issue, yeah. Uh, so uh, what happened basically was that, you know, I fell in love with a, with a mystery story, with a detective story. And people asked me, well, you know, you were talking about hard-boiled and cozy and this and that and the other, and I thought, well, gee, you know, when I started, when I wrote my first mystery, I thought, goodness, you know, how do I, how do I talk about my detective? Well, my detective is a Chicana detective She's not hard boiled, she's actually parboiled. So, <laughs> whatever that means in that whole thing, uh, and that's my beginnings as a detective writer, uh, writer of crime fiction. Red Page.
1: I
2: like the Red
3: the Page. The Red Page, yeah, I like <laughs> the Red good. Page
1: too. That's good. It's a
2: good title. <laughs> the
1: Red Page, <laughs> yes. Um, so, Eddie, um, you've done all these things. And you've written two mystery novels. I, I, my first question is, are you going to write another yeah, there's,
2: one? Yeah, there's one in progress now, yeah.
1: Okay, good. Uh, for and, the audience who may not know your, your, or your and books. And as
2: Reed Coleman knows, there's another one <laughs> lurking, a big one, set in San Francisco in the 80s that, uh, that yeah, that Reed is going to personally kill me if I don't finish it. Uh, soon, so.
1: Good, good, Reed. <laughs> um, so... Why boxing, for those who don't know? Why did you choose the boxing
2: world? Oh, well, the boxing thing was, was, (laughs) I had no choice. I mean, my father was a boxing writer. That's what he wrote about for The Examiner. And I I grew up around boxing, and I was always fascinated by it. Uh, I can't think of anything I've been exposed to in my life that displays simultaneously more nobility and more innate cruelty than boxing. So it was like a natural subject. And I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by it. I, it comes and goes in my life where I get so disgusted with it that I swear I'm never going to watch another boxing match. And then, damn it, I'll see a really good one. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like, oh, I'm back. He's hooked. Um, so, it, yeah, that was always just a very fascinating. Thing would be, but but in terms of uh, my character, I mean, I wrote a character that clearly is inspired by my father, and sort of my, and it's funny how crime fiction can become something very personal, uh, in a way that literary fiction. Everybody always assumes that, you know oh, he's writing, you know this heartfelt Romana Clay about his upbringing or something. But when you put a dead body in the book, immediately they assume that none of those other qualities exist in your work, because it's, it's just genre fiction. But um, my novel, "The Distance," was completely uh, an exploration on my part of my family background. I mean that that's what that book is, right? I mean the the dark secrets in the book and everything else are all things that are very much a part of my upbringing. Uh so it really was a, a, an exploratory uh work in that regard. And I wanted to live in that time. I mean, you know this, you know, it's like so I'm in a really it's really really fun to research it and to and to know, you know, what was on this street? You know, when you when they went out to dinner after the fight, where were they going to dinner and what was that place like? You know, uh, that's really, really fascinating for me. Um, anyway, that's...
1: Well, okay, this leads into the next question, which is essentially, uh, it's not how do you do research, but we are in the library. Libraries are research places. We have this wonderful exhibit. Um, You mentioned the phone book, the 1940 phone prize. Absolutely. Um, How do you all do your research, or or do you? Well, why don't you just tell me?
0: Well, I I'm a very tangible person, and one of the things I try to do with my writing is I, I you know the only way that we we can see the world that we experience the world is through our senses. So in order to get the past to be immediate and visceral, which is necessary because I think Americans have a love-hate affair with, with, the, with history. You know, some people just, I won't read anything historical. Um, so I'm writing for an audience that I think is not necessarily history buff, but just the average person who wants a good story. I want to make sure that the history comes off as exciting, as real. It's not something that's just do- over and done with in the past. And in order to do that I want to get the senses. I want to I know and I want them to see and smell and hear and taste what Miranda would have experienced and what life was like in the city in 1940 in, on May 25th, 1940 or whatever date that I'm setting a particular book. So in order to get there I rely on a lot of visual and concrete materials. Um... Obviously, perfume from the past. I just recently purchased an um, antique bottle of Gervé from eBay. Um, eBay is like my big research secret. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm joining eBay-a-holics, wow. You know, wow. at some point. Stay down that road lies peril. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it really is. It's it's a treasure trove. I mean, uh, through photos, through through experiencing that, through finding an old bottle of scotch or bourbon, which I know Eddie has done. Um, <laughs> I don't need an excuse. Yeah. Uh, through through the paper ephemera and objects that people leave behind. Uh, in my latest book, I actually found a bracelet on eBay that was a souvenir from the World's Fair that had an inscription that said, for Nina. And there was something about this bracelet that moved me. So it's in the book. I found a matchbook, okay, a souvenir matchbook. And this is this was, this was typical of how it works its way into the plot. It was sealed when I purchased it. It hadn't been opened in 70 years, and on it, it was an oversized matchbook about this big. I should have brought it with me, but um, and inside, it's foil lined, is a a souvenir matches from the World's Fair. On the envelope, because these envelopes were meant to be mailed, because these were the matches being ubiquitous at the time. You could just, they were a good gift, Uh, and they were actually really beautiful. They were painted and everything. You could buy a pair, mail it you know and send it away so on the envelope was written happy dreams Annie glad I found my, uh, P.S. I found my license too that's a mystery (laughs) you know and I thought what does this mean, who was Annie 70 years ago that this person found this for her or was writing this to her or wanted to give this to her and why didn't he give it to her How did it come to be on eBay and in my possession? And what license was it? So this matchbook worked its way into the plot of City of Secrets because it spoke to me. And that's how I do my research. I mean, other than like phone books and maps and menus and all that fun stuff and videos and film and talking to people, the actual objects can hold so much magic, if you will, that they are really inspirational. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
2: (laughs) So here's, most most of the characters that I write are obviously based on someone that I know, and either it's like a dead-on depiction of them, or it's just my imagination of them. But if I'm ever stuck for a character, you go to uh, an antique store or something, and you find somebody's, discarded scrapbook Mm -hmm. and all you have to do is flip through that scrapbook and if, man, if you can't write a character's backstory from looking at those photographs uh, find another line of work because man, scrapbooks are the greatest you know, it's like yeah, it's just really remarkable. But watch it, Kelly, with the eBay stuff. <laughs> that could get a little out of hand. I, I, The libraries are invaluable for me, because, and I start with uh, photo research. That's what I do. Uh, like in San Francisco, at the public library there, they have the special photography collection, and I will just go in there and spend a day, you know, if it's a, if it's a neighborhood that I want, to depict, or whatever it might be. I mean, I've just seen extraordinary stuff. If you want to talk about somebody jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge in the 1940s, the, the pictures are just, you know, they're not what you expect. It's what's left behind, and there's these incredible news photographs of like what the jumper left on the bridge, and it's just like, wow. I mean, It's there for you, you know, I mean, you just have to go find it. Writing it becomes easy after that, you know. Uh, But but the photographs are are vitally important for me. And then phone books and directories and magazines and all that, it's... Newspapers? Oh, well, (laughs) I have so many old newspapers in my house, it's absolutely ridiculous. (laughs)
1: Gloria Damasco, did she live your life, but you still have to do research because you're you're writing now about them?
3: Well, it's amazing. I mean, memory is so selective. We all know that. And as we grow older now, now it's getting even more and more selective. (laughs) Sometimes I even forget my own name, you know. So imagine um, having to write something about something you've lived through because certainly I have lived, you know, all of my novels have the Chicano civil rights as, as historical background and um, here in Berkeley we had quite a, actually there are two of my novels where Berkeley is mentioned in terms of what happened here at the time in 1968 and 69 uh, in terms of the Third World students. And uh, Chicanos being part of that, uh, the, one of the four groups that went on strike in 1969. A strike that lasted almost six months. Uh, a strike that was not welcomed by anybody. Uh, but that at the end, the students prevailed and it got 10,000, including faculty and uh, teaching assistants, all kinds of people. Uh, aided by secretaries you know, yay! <laughs> because they were the ones that would be able to kind of be the Mataharis you know um, working in different departments of the, uh, the, the different schools different... so they were the ones that kind of transmitted the information that the students needed to know uh, it was the first time actually that Governor Reagan at the time Um, Most people think that Know very little about the third world student strike Uh, And it's actually mentioned very little In any kind of um, uh, documentary Made of the 60s in Berkeley In the 70s But um, it was the first time That a national guard was called To occupy a campus Was against the third world students by Governor Reagan then. It wasn't People's Park, it wasn't any other, and yet there's very little mention of this. It, It was the first thing that attracted me to write with a historical background because there was so very little known. Even in this campus, there were only 200 and some students of color, and that included all four groups, including the Native Americans. Uh, in a in a in a institution that had twenty seven thousand students and there were only really literally a handful. Uh, they had to you know to to fight for every little bit that was I lived through that. But once you sit down to write something, you don't really remember all you need to remember. So, because the, the, also the, the first novel, Eulogy for a Brown Angel, also has to do with the Peralta family, which owned this land. <laughs> the Peraltas owned six, the size of five cities in, in the Bay, East Bay, uh, including Berkeley and Albany. And uh, I needed to find out about them, so I went to the Oakland City Room at the main library. Wonderful. And the man who was hitting that was so knowledgeable. But the information that I needed for the novel, I could not find anywhere. So he simply took me to the vertical files. And I started spending days and days and days, you know, kind of dusting off stuff. Because those are the, the primary sources. And Newspapers, as you were saying, are incredible how much information... Uh, that you need to research uh, is is done through news all newspapers. I believe in that. I believe in libraries. I love libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, as a student here, I spend most of my time <laughs> in libraries studying and doing this and that. So, you know, I worked in a, uh, as a student uh, uh, um, in the first Chicano Studies Library and uh, the Ethnic Studies Library Lily Castillo-Speed is just a wonderful librarian she, I have had to come to Berkeley many times to the Ethnic Studies Library also and to the Bancroft Library as well it's a good thing that I'm, I'm an alumna for life so I have this little card that will allow me to all kinds of stacks and places and uh, so yes absolutely you, you know, libraries are very important and newspapers as well
2: Psychically, the way I feel about it is if I'm working on a project, there's something about going to the library or going out and actually driving where you're talking about, actually talking to people who live there, and doing that research is infinitely more valuable than anything you are going to find on the internet. I mean, I'm not saying that the internet isn't a fantastic and convenient tool. But I have yet to actually trust the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I'm I'm that generation, I guess. But uh, I'm just. Uh,
0: I trust the newspapers. I mean, when I when I write my stuff, I I set a particular data side, and I go to the library in the, the main library, go to the newspaper periodic, periodical section, we had four newspapers in San Francisco at the time. I normally research, I try to research all four of them. If I'm pressed for time, it may be two of them. And I see exactly what the weather was, what was going on, what movies were playing, what was the, what, were, what were the headlines. This is what tells me what's going on. This is what tells me what, what hats were in the season or um, what you know, what if beer was on sale and who was selling it and what brand it would have been, you know, was Acme beer publicizing at the time? Yeah. Was, I, I had, a, I had
2: a, a Thanksgiving dinner in my book, <laughs> and because you know the date, right? Yeah. If it's Thanksgiving in 1948, you know the date. So I went and got the newspaper, and I knew exactly what they would be talking about at the dinner table. Exactly. It's like, man, that guy that's still in the iron lung. I can't. <laughs> believe, how long is that going to go on? You know, yeah. and it's like, yeah oh, that's on the front page of the paper that yeah. day.
3: What I would like to see is a, is a world where you can have the technology and still have the book. Um, there is something very intimate about a book in your hand, you know, even a big one. <laughs> you know, you have to carry a tome. Um, but, you know, but there are some, some things in which the uh, research online is also very um, helpful. Uh, and I've done, you know, like I've researched I'm sure I'm on all kinds of FBI I mean I was in the 60s already I'm sure you know. <laughs> but, but now, you know, I'm more so, I'm being, you know Homeland Security is very aware of what, I, what I've been researching because uh, there are times when I need to, I, I did the research for the first novel because my detective was going to carry a gun and I had to know what that feels like Uh, One of the Oakland Latino police cops, you know, was very, very nice. And he, you know, said he came to my school after reading that that first book and said, anytime you want to, you know, I can take you on, you know, with me when I do this and that and any kind of help you need, just tell me, you know, love to do it. I said, you know what, I need you to take me target shooting. And he did and I, handle, I learned to handle different, including a rifle. You know, that was awful. And I began to respect more and more life, even more so than I did before, because there is a bullet that is the size of this knuckle, my little pinky, that at 50 feet can kill anybody. I got a lot of, you know respect, a lot more respect for life even then because it's so precious and so fragile uh, that a tiny bullet would just cut it completely but I did need to research more recently I think uh, with um, a couple of rifles that were not as, as heavy and you know bulky as what I had shot, <laughs> used to shoot when this friend uh, took me target shooting so I Went online and I researched, you know, the rifles that would be light enough for my detective, who is only five feet four, you know, and and uh, kind of slender. So um, that is very good. Some interesting things happen after that in my computer That I am sure <laughs> you know as soon as you write, you write rifle da 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 or handgun or whatever immediately somebody you know big brother is watching you um, and I'm sure I'm somebody's list I'm somebody's list of something or other um, but it is in some in some cases I do go to the internet for certain things that are Uh, much more easy to do than to get, you know, I had about 50 different books called the Policeman's Bible (laughs) have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. The old, you know, where you can see all kinds of handguns and everything but online they show it to you from all kinds of angles, you can see what you can actually, you know, try to figure out how it will sit against your shoulder, that kind of thing so it's, uh, you know, it was, uh, for some things, I think it's, it's very good. Uh, other than that, I'd rather read the information I, in a book, you know.
1: But you're on the list. Yeah, yeah. You're on the list now. Oh, yes, I, yes, I am. I am course, marked. I'm a marked woman. I,
2: I, I'm speaking as someone who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where we have all these libraries that we can avail ourselves of. You know, if you're, if you're writing in the middle of nowhere, the internet is the greatest tool you know, ever for you. But when you're here, it's like, I guess that's what I'm saying, is I don't, I, I don't like the, the, the lack of initiative, shall I say, in a certain <laughs> younger generation that doesn't actually go out and engage because they're too busy engaging with the computer. That's what I was saying, okay? Oh, a whole other <laughs> issue. That's a whole other
1: issue. Um, <laughs> Well, since you do do research and you do get out there, this is for everybody, what is the most amazing fact that you came across in your research? How's that? doesn't have to be the most, but a few things. Anything really kind of...
0: I can start. Um, I think the thing that well, because it, it changed the direction of the book that I was planning to write, was when I researched, I was researching background for Miranda and originally my first book was going to be set entirely on Treasure Island, and it was going to be a much different book. But then in the course of research, actually going through photos uh, in a book at the library, I found out about the rice bowl parties, which is something that I I had no idea that they existed. I didn't know what they were, like a lot of people. And then the more I found out about them, the more I realized that, no, this is the book. Because the rice bowl parties were a direct Result of an external racism that was forcing Asian Americans into this little ghetto called Chinatown even though China and Japan were at war which meant that the Chinese Americans were boycotting their Japanese American neighbors who owned businesses in Chinatown. You had people at each other's throats and nobody knew about it. Hmm. And so the Rice Bowl research directly led into that and that just it it astounded me that it was something that even though I'd heard of obviously I knew about the the fair and you know I considered myself fairly a student in San Francisco history I had never heard of the rice bowl parties and they you know they were they had been held for three years uh, on the west coast ours was the largest they had one in LA they had one in Portland Um, but it was a little bit of forgotten history and it totally changed my life Hmm. Oh, sure. Sorry, the rice bowl party was a three day and night celebration that occurred in Chinatown, uh, sort of like a Mardi Gras. I mean, it was, it was these, this is in in an era where people went out. I mean, they didn't text each other, they talked to each (laughs) other, and they actually went out and they danced and um, spoke and they had a nightlife, and thousands and thousands. I mean, hundred, uh, literally a, a couple of hundred thousand people over uh, over the course of three days would fill Chinatown. Streets were all shut off. It was usually held in conjunction along with New Year's celebration, and the whole point of it ostensibly was to raise money for the Chinese war effort against Japan, the Sino-Japanese War, second one. Uh, the culminating effort was a parade that ran from the Civic Center down Market Street and through Chinatown uh, which would end at Grant Avenue and women carrying a large Chinese flag huge flag and you know dozens of women holding the edge would go slowly down Market Street and through this route and people along Market Street from windows from people on street corners would throw money in this flag and I'm proud to say that our city raised a lot of money that way. But that was the, that was the culminating act of the Rice Bowl Party. Hmm. And it is the uh, event that opens City of Dragons.
2: Um, I get the most interesting thing for me, I guess, is this plot of my second novel, Shadow Boxer, came entirely from a very, very strange book I found in a used bookstore in downtown San Francisco uh, that I have no idea where this all came from, but it was the most meticulously detailed uh, one man's fight against uh, corruption in California because he had uncovered this, this land swindle thing. And he, had, and he wrote this book because he had been so disgraced by all these people that were in power. And I have no idea whether he was a crackpot or whether this was legitimate. And I started to research it and I just said, oh, the hell with it, I can't, you know. But I did use it as the plot of of the second novel, which was interesting because I, I was having this conversation with some, oh, the, this fellow that I'm gonna actually interview tonight in San Francisco, one of the, the Scandinavian crime writers, uh, because he said, you know, I wrote this book, and he's got like this uh, this book called Relic, that's like predates Dan Brown. It's like a Da Vinci Code book, but he wrote it prior to the Da Vinci Code. He said, you know, the point of this whole book is there's no dead body in this. It's 700 pages long, and there's no crime that's actually committed in this book, yet it's sold as crime fiction. And I said, you know, I've written one of those. Because there is, there is no body or anything in my second novel and I think it's why there isn't a third one because because my editor, Suzanne Kirk, she said, we love your first book, Eddie. Anything you do in the second book is perfectly fine. Just make sure there's a body in chapter one. <laughs> and of course, being a contrarian, Eddie didn't put the body in the chapter one or anywhere else in the book. So it's like, hmm, that was subversive. To what end, I don't know, but uh, yeah, there's no. Sorry if you haven't read it. I spoil it for you. There's there's no dead body in that book.
1: <laughs>
3: well, for me, I'm I'm trying to think. Well, um, I don't know. It's it's just a, just just a, you know, well, my editor, the, the, for the first two novels, uh, said, you know, my goodness, woman, you're taking this, you know. Uh, detective all over creation and I said, well, if California is creation, yes. (laughs) But uh, what happens is that I have a detective that loves going places and doing things, very active, very dynamic uh, in terms of going to cities she doesn't know and doing her detecting, you know. So for me, when I do research, It means going to all these different places. The first novel begins in LA during the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War uh, and the ensuing riot. Um, Then, so I had to go to LA. Would you believe that LA? I wrote a poem called City in the Fog after I went to LA. Because people always think of San Francisco as the city in the fog. But have you been in L.A. at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning? It's a mystic city, too. And it's a different L.A. You know, so um, that, that I wouldn't have known about L.A. had I not had to go there and, um, and do research, you know, at that time of the morning in East L.A. and downtown L.A., all the way from East L.A., you know, go the route of from East L.A. to the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica. And, and it's just, uh, it was just fascinating for me. So San Francisco is not alone, and actually San Diego, too, is pretty misty, and all along the coast but uh, but definitely in San Francisco the fog has a very very special personality i mean it's it's just that you don't see it anywhere else as it hangs you know just so as it comes over the hills the marine layer the street, as you know the streets i mean it's exactly. <laughs> it will never get down 24th street to the mission district have you ever seen the mission district in the fog you have? No, because oh. he never gets over that hill? Never. I was trying to, to find a day that he would, because in Black Widow's Wardrobe, you know, the novel starts in San Francisco during the Day of the Dead procession from Mission Dolores to the Galleria de la Raza on 24th Street. And I wanted some mist, <laughs> you know, to create atmosphere. Well, I went there time and again, and time and again, and it would just stay up there. It would never get down to the Mission District. You know, there I was, so I had to settle for wind <laughs> instead. But uh, but it, 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 Gloria takes me. Gloria Damasco is my detective. Uh, and if anybody asks me if she my alter ego, no, she is actually fashioned after my sister my real bi- biological sister who lives in Mexico and has never spoken English in you know, life. So, uh, But she is, she is Gloria Damasco. Um, so, uh, but she takes me, you know, the, the, I come back to Oakland, then Berkeley, then I go to Napa. That's the first one. The second one takes me from, uh, uh, the, from Oakland to the Central Valley because it deals with the farm workers' struggle. That's the historical background And then From there I come back to Oakland And I go to Sonoma And that's where it ends And so you see You know Black Widow's wardrobe Takes me all the way To Teposlan <laughs> In Mexico Near Cuernavaca Have you ever been there?
1: Yes
3: You know how there are Some places that are cosmic They have a certain Something you walk in there And you feel invigorated You want that to, you want to feel that way Go to Teposlan in the valley of the Cuernavaca uh, about, I don't know, about 40 minutes from the city so anyway, you know, all of these different cities so my research is really, it takes me from 6 to 8 months to do research for a novel Um, and I don't sit down to write until I finish my research and uh, then my husband is a photographer, he loves going with me because we go to all these places, you know, and he takes photographs of everything that I just point, you know, and he's my photographer. And, and then puts things on the wall, on, you know, uh, cardboard and uh, poster paper and, and everything. My, my office is full of the, all the photographs. Uh, so if I need to verify something or to pick something else, you know, I have all the photographs there. But I continue during the ride and continue going to these places, uh, you know, just to keep that flavor, that taste, that sense of the city that I'm writing about.
1: Well, I want to thank you all, and I want to thank Randall so much for yeah, inviting me and inviting great. us.